Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Basically, um, Matthew is somebody who always goes way too far <laughs> with everything that he does. So he had this crazy idea to start a yoga conference, and not only did it have to be a non-profit, it has to be in the most beautiful building in the city, and with no schlock advertising, and with all local talent that couldn't be invited back. Uh, then he took on Patanjali, and not only did he take on uh, Patanjali, he just went way too far. So instead of creating a commentary like everyone else does, he had to actually remix this whole 2,000-year-old text, um, which I love. Uh, then uh, he asked me a little while ago, Michael, since you're a dad and I'm about to become a dad again, um, maybe we should write letters to each other and just e express what's going on in our lives with our partners. And, and so I'm like, okay. So I write a little letter about how I'm feeling. And he writes back this, it's like an essay, <laughs> 10 pages long. So now it's faltering a little bit because I just can't keep up. It takes me a week to respond to him and then he writes. He's really long. So anyways, I can't keep up to Matthew. Oh, then it goes further. Then he get so his partner gets pregnant, and they don't just have a baby; they have an eleven-pound baby. <laughs> the thing's basically made of ghee. <laughs> so, basically, everything he does, he goes way too far. And so, because of that, he's really been a lightning rod uh, for criticism and also for a lot of respect from people that I respect. Um, when he wrote about John Friend and Desikachar and Geshe Michael Roach in the past few years, not only did he expose stories that people weren't articulating, he also gave an Ayurvedic analysis, a psychoanalytic analysis, a neuropsychological analysis. It's like, who can keep up with this guy? Um, so anyways, it's great to have Matthew here. Uh, I love him very much, and I'm just so honored that he's, he's here tonight. To, to go too far. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Matt. Uh, thank you so much, Michael, for inviting me. And uh, to Nicole, is Nicole here? 
as well. She's not, She's not for um, helping to organize. I had this, I uh, brought this projector, but um, I don't feel like it now. So um, I thought what I'd do is I would, I would read excerpts from the text, which is uh, a combination of uh, remixed sutras from Patanjali's text. And I'll explain a little bit probably as I go on um, what that means. Uh, but then it's interspersed with commentary and, and pieces that um, I call reverie. So I'll just start from the beginning and then probably go to the end. Um, so Pada 1 is called the Book of Integration. We all inquire into yoga. Yoga happens in the resolution of consciousness. Through yoga, consciousness can become aware of its interdependence. Otherwise, consciousness can become increasingly alienated and awareness becomes inaccessible. There are five common conscious patterns that can clash or harmonize. Assertions, confusions, fancy, dreamless sleep, and remembering. Assertions may come from witnessing, inference, or belief. Confusions are the misalignment of words and reality. Fancy is language that drifts away from relationship towards metaphysics. Dreamless sleep is a feeling of nothingness. Remembering is the present experience of the past. These patterns can be loosened through consistent practice and presence. Practice is any intentional repatterning of feelings and thoughts towards interdependence. Repatterning may occur over a period of consistent and focused effort. Presence is felt when you hold no expectation or assumption. Awareness of interdependence is the fullest presence. Reasoning, reflection, wonderment, and the awe of being alive are the initial gateways to integration. Through integration, these gateways dissolve, leaving unseen traces. At death, these unseen traces are resolved into their surroundings and recycled. In yoga, this resolution can come through the efforts of confidence, energy, deep memory, focus, and intelligence. The intensity of practice reveals yoga's nearness. Intensity has many different facets, including the focus of devotion. Devotion can feel timeless and resolved. In that feeling is the awareness of interdependence. We have always felt it. It can be heard in primal sound, which, when sung, can reveal hidden things. Then, Obstacles to inner spaciousness become transparent. Those obstacles are disease, apathy, doubt, carelessness, joylessness, addiction, false perception, unsteady focus, and restlessness. Their symptoms are stress, pain, depression, trembling, and irregular breathing. Calming practice alleviates these symptoms. Calmness arises from friendship, empathy, delight, and equality towards others, or spaciousness in breathing, or a feeling of stillness in sensuality, 
or when experience is light and joyful, or when you observe the senses without expectation or assumption, or by meditating upon dreams or sleep, or by holding in your heart something you love. In time, the heart can hold the smallest thing and the uncontainable. When stillness is held, experience absorbs and reflects the things that surround it like a jewel. Its facets can deconstruct the object, its components, its energy, the act of perceiving it, and the mystery of perception. This experience can hold language, or it can be empty of words. The experience of worded or wordless wonderment plunges down to the quantum level. In deep meditation, you can witness how experience is woven together. Such witnessing leaves traces. Your hidden aspects become integrated. A feeling of authenticity arises. It is deeper than what you can hear or study. It begins to unravel future patterning. Bearing no future patterns, you become unbound. So that's the, my rendering of the first pada of Patanjali's text. Um, so what have I done? <laughs> um, I'm not a Sanskritist, uh, but I've been in a Sanskritic-type milieu for probably the last 12 years. And I've compiled about 15 translations that I refer to repeatedly. And it's a text that I've been both fascinated with and very confused by for all of that time. Fascinated with it because it has a silent pulse within its aphoristic rhythm that I think communicates something very primal to the postmodern brain starved for stillness. And it also communicates some kind of authority that I think is very attractive within a confusing age. And I also have had incredible respect for the precision of attention that this Iron Age philosopher is able to pay to internal states, especially given the fact that um, by the time Patanjali is compiling the wisdom of the ascetics of his age, the sense of internality that we actually identify now as our primary human agency is probably only, according to the archaeological record, 3,000 years old. 3,000 years old up to his point. Um, prior to that, uh, human beings, it is postulated, had a completely different kind of consciousness that was not so prone to alienation or to internal monologue. In a sense, Patanjali is dealing with a very new quantity uh, in human consciousness, and it's amazing uh, the way in which uh, he's able to study it in great detail. Um, but at the same time, I'm very confused by the placement that this text has within the canon of modern yoga culture, because it has some really weird views in it. Um, 
It is, and nobody disputes any of what I'm about to say. Uh, people make apologies for it. People rationalize it. People, um, they say, or, you know, in worst case scenario, they say, well, we can't possibly understand what he meant by such and such because we're living in Kali Yuga or something like that. Some devolutionary excuse is used to explain, you know, why we can't understand, you know, the, 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 the perfection of this book. But this book is unapologetically hard dualist. It drives towards uh, a complete separation between prakriti, or what is called nature, and awareness, which is called purusha in the Sanskrit. And this drive is so intense that it arcs towards the final chapter of the book, which is called kaivalyapada, which means the path of isolation. And it's very strange because when I look around in yoga culture, I don't see people who wish to isolate themselves or who wish to retreat from life or who wish to transcend their troubles at all. Uh, sometimes I will see that, and um, in the community, you know, we would identify that as, as a kind of spiritual bypassing. For the most part, um, modern yoga practitioners crave community and intimacy and social justice, and people argue with me on that one, but uh, people crave uh, support for their family life, for householding. They, they crave advice for their love relationships. They crave meaning uh, in community. And there is, not, there is almost nothing within this text that speaks to those concerns. And so I'm, con I'm confused. Um, how does it come to occupy such a central place within the canon of yoga literature? Um, I think it has something to do with our own vestigial asceticism within our culture, our need to uh, withdraw even subtly, uh, subconsciously from the challenges of life, our, our desire to go on retreat or to uh, go on yoga vacation or to um, somehow be able to withdraw. Um, and so... And then there's, I mean, not to mention, not to mention some of the other uh, strange aspects. Uh, the, the book is filled with the magical thinking of its day as well. In the third pada, uh, he distinctly describes how, you know, really good meditators will be able to fly uh, or to shrink down to the size of a tiny little bead or uh, possess the bodies of another, um, literally enter into somebody else's body while they are sleeping or while they are dead and reanimate it and become a yoga zombie. Um, this is not a, it's not, I'm not making it up, it's not, it's not um, an exaggeration and it's not unfair to say that an Iron Age text is actually proposing some Iron Age ideas. So uh, what confuses me is that I look around and, and I don't really see anybody calling out the intense process of transcultural and transhistorical translation that we really must engage in if we're going to do yoga philosophy instead of just memorize it. And this was one of the watershed moments for me as I was um, inspired uh, to, to take up this project is my, my really good friend, Scott Petrie, um, who's teaching tonight somewhere, um, 
we were sitting together. He, he, he teaches a, an advanced yoga philosophy program that kind of floats around this. It used to be in, it used to be in my study in Cabbage Town, and, and now I think it's under a tree somewhere, although it's kind of cold, so I don't know where he's moved. Uh, but, but one night he, he, said, he said, you know, I really hope that we can start doing yoga philosophy instead of just memorizing it. Because memorizing yoga philosophy being able to quote sutras, being able to quote from Bhagavad Gita is akin to being able to uh, learn theology. Uh, and the difference between th- philosophy and theology is enormous. In theology, we know what the end result is. Uh, in philosophy, we're, we, we, we consent to not knowing. And um, that stuck with me because I realized that the way in which some of the core ancient texts of modern yoga and mindfulness practice, I think, uh, are treated uh, with this kind of devotionalism, a kind of exegetical attitude. And by exegesis, I mean taking a book as though it's perfect and given and received, and all you have to do is just, uh, you just have to explain what it means, uh, and then the secrets of God will be unlocked for all. The the philosophical method is really hermeneutic. It, it takes a text and says, okay, this is a text. It means that it has had readers, and it means that it is subjected to a number of reading strategies, and those reading strategies will change. And, of course, we see this through the generations of commentaries that come out of Patanjali's work. And so my whole, my whole like, uh, I guess, challenge uh, with, with this book is to begin to do yoga philosophy in a way that uh, is agnostic, that does not know where the mountaintop pathway leads to, that does not know um, uh, how, how good we can make this thing, uh, that, is not, um, that also, I guess, predominantly is not focused upon uh, the consolation of beautiful internal states. That last point is the most important for me because um, one of the strangest things about this book when you really start studying it is that uh, its ethical premises, uh, the yamas and niyamas, are, are borrowed almost uh, verbatim from the Jain system and from previous uh, ascetic systems as well, but they're almost verbatim uh, to um, uh, Mahavir's Jain yamas and niyamas. And the, the Jainist uh, notion of ethical behavior within community is very different from what I would assume ours is. Um, we treat each other um, with kindness because we have some notion of the value and the health psychosomatically of uh, empathy. But older versions of ethics, uh, especially in ascetic traditions, ask us to withdraw from contact with other human beings and other beings in general so as not to dirty ourselves with the karma of interaction. And when you start seeing that uh, the the ethics of this book lead towards kind of a, a transcendentalist perspective where if you do you know, really commit to uh, nonviolence and to non-stealing uh, and, to, and to sexual responsibility and to non-grasping and so on, 
that the end goal is that you will be you will be able to pull away from your soci- socio-political involvement to such a, to such an extent that you will not be concerned your meditation will not be affected that's the general goal of the ascetic path and um, while it comes up with incredible uh, insight into the nature of consciousness we also I think have to begin to recognize that it's a rather traumatized point of view um, and I hear you know having having grown up Catholic I'm, I have like a really fine ear for trauma and I, and and especially within religious or philosophical language and um, so these are some of the themes that uh, these are some of the themes that I started with um, and also please interrupt me with uh, any you know questions or comments that you have because I just have the clock in front of me and I'll just read excerpts but if you but it, but please if you have questions yeah Karina thank you it helps me yeah you talked about language a few times yeah. in the first part and I'm not sure is this something you've introduced or is this in the original or memory is not so good um, and I'm just curious about that when you're, like, when you're talking about the uh, I mean your remix and versus the ancient interpretation as more of a dualistic text how, how does your language? Yeah, I reference language as a technology of cognition, um, and use that and use that to refer to Patanjali's notion of shabda or sound, uh, and also testimony. So, the book is filled with an analysis of language. It has to be because. Um, Part of what I'm trying to analyze is, is, how we, is how we receive philosophical ideas through the medium of language and how language changes over time. And, um, uh, and, also, and also how language can ossify uh, into a series of transcendental signifiers that become empty of meaning but filled with devotion. Um, so with regard, to, with regard to the actual verses, um, let's see. Um, I would have to go to my commentary to, to, re- to reflect back on uh, my choices for the verses. This experience can hold language, the experience of samadhi. Oh, these are the levels of samadhi. Yeah, some, some, uh, there's some samadhis with cognition and with, with, with internal monologue and some samadhis without. So, so that's what that specifically refers to. This experience can hold language or it can be empty of words. The experience of worded or wordless wonderment plunges down to the quantum level. Um, so I don't know if that helps. Um. So I'm, yeah, I'm just curious. Is that is that a shift from the the text? Is that your remix? Or is yeah, it is. So let me find. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let me find commentary for you. Okay. So the commentary for Pada One uh, Sutra Forty Four, um, uh, One Forty Three. And this book doesn't have the does not have the uh, the sutras in Sanskrit in it, yeah. Um, so I I have my translation, uh, or this experience can hold language, or it can be empty of words. And then my commentary says in one forty two three, the original describes how meditative wonderment. 
progresses from worded to wordless. As the flow of cognition halts, timelessness rises. And then 144 is the experience of worded or wordless wonderment plunges down to the quantum level. And my commentary says, here I invoke a contemporary expression of sukshma vishaya, subtle objects, which will be picked up again in Pada 3, the Book of Wonders. Patanjali is invoking the tanmatras of the Samkhya cosmology he and most Indian philosophers of his day are drawing upon, the sensory potentials of sound, touch, form, taste, and smell, uh, which are said to precede their elemental media of space, air, fire, water, and earth. Um, so my reference to uh, the use of language, worded, non-worded, is about the levels of samadhi he describes in the first pada. Interesting. Yeah, I guess how I heard it was not that it was, in your rendition, not that it was a final state that was wordless, like it was wordless or worded. Yeah. A deep state, and that seemed like a new thing. Um, I do preserve the arc towards wordlessness, but I, I as, as, a, um, as a compulsive writer, uh, would say that um, I, I would oscillate between, you know, you know, ultimate states as being worded or wordless. I mean, there's a deconstruction of ultimate states in general throughout the book. Um, so I don't really argue towards, towards the hierarchy of, of samadhis. In fact, in fact, I spend a lot of time deconstructing that. Um, because I don't know what the purpose is, really, uh, in, in creating a, a, a Baroque system, leveling system of, of mystical experiences. Uh, they all have their values, it seems. Um, uh, so I'll go to the end and, and give a, a personal note. Um, how I got here. In the section, What is Meditation For?, I described how I'd spent about 10 years with meditation instructions that dissociated me from my ecology. But I've just remembered that that's not how it all started exactly. I first began to meditate and then do asana because I was in love. I was, in tw- I was 23 and living a long way from home with my ex-wife. I felt I'd lost all direction. Dublin was lonelier to me and far colder than Canada. I drank and smoked and worked on my very painful first novel while the rain battered the slate roof day after day. One day my ex heard that a meditation teacher was coming through town and suggested that we go to hear what he had to say. Depression makes one intensely reluctant, but I trusted her and I wanted to please her. I wanted to be a better person for her. If I could learn meditation, perhaps I could calm the whirlwind of confusion that seemed to swirl within me, between us, and then resolve it into the love I knew lay underneath. The organizers rented a cold, stony room in the Kilmainham jail. So I was introduced to meditation in an old jail that had been turned into a museum. The teacher was Tibetan. I didn't know anything about Tibet, and I didn't really care. His English was poor. I can't remember what he talked about. But after a while, he said, Okay, now we meditate. Close your eyes and breathe deeply. Through your nose is best. I did what I was told, feeling anxiety rise. After a few minutes, he said, 
Okay, when you inhale, ask, who am I? And then, when you exhale, give the honest answer, don't know. (laughs) I followed the instructions and almost immediately felt tears and snot streaming down my face. I didn't know what had happened to me. Somehow, in a single question and answer on a single inhale and exhale, I had begun to undo the knots of consciousness that had since early childhood kept me abstracted from my flesh and isolated into a rigid and self-protective identity. I walked home with my ex in the rain. For me, meditation began through relationship and through becoming honest about not knowing. I didn't stop weeping for days. There was no one to follow up with, but what was there to follow up? The instruction was so simple and profound and left me reeling and unsure how to practice it. A few years later, I met the teacher who taught me abstract meditation techniques. Somehow I thought that his more measured and intellectual approach would put that first experience in Dublin into perspective and open its mystery for me. It didn't. Rather, it triggered all of my latent convictions of low self-worth. My mind could never focus clearly enough. There was always another bit of dharma to learn and obey. I should always recite more prayers. Abstract practice amplified my self-abstraction. I followed the instructions for a long time, but I remained disconnected from the flesh and heart. I lost weight and libido, and my joints began to crack. I got smarter in the head and stiffer in the spine. I studied and meditated voraciously, trying always to rise up out of my inadequacy, to wash away my original sin. I tried to believe I was happier or becoming more integrated. Years later, we were in Manhattan. I was at another very low point. My body was in pain. My emotions were tangled, suppressed, and volatile. It was raining. She looked at me and said, let's go to a yoga class. She grabbed my hand and we went. I remember rising up out of Shavasana and looking at my hand, by which I had been led to this room, and crying in gratitude for simply having a hand, a wrist, hairs on my forearm. I was flesh and here, and breathing held a secret joy I had forgotten, and there was a rush of warm blood from my heart to my fingertips. We walked home through the rain, For me, yoga began through relationship and reign. The exalted is common and the common exalted, and living feels like a summer downpour. Standing in it washes away alienating thoughts and isolated footprints. stop me. That was really good. That was very good. Let me go to uh, the second book, which is probably uh, the book that many of you are most familiar with because it, dis- it, it describes the Ashtanga. It describes the eight limbs of practice. Um, So I call it the book of practices. 
Yoga applies endurance, learning, and commitment. It reduces alienation and cultivates empathy. Ignorance, individualism, addiction, dissociation, and the afterlife, it's in quotes, these alienate. Ignorance enables alienation in all forms, from seed to tree. Ignorance involves not learning about change in objects, ideas, sensations, or self. Individualism sees things instead of relationships. Addiction turns pleasure into a thing. Dissociation runs away from experience. The afterlife devalues life. The causes of alienation are interwoven. Loosening one begins to unravel them all towards empathy. Concentration stills alienating thoughts. Fruitlessly seeking consolation, alienating patterns of thought tend to repeat. This repetition can impede self-perception, relationship to time, and the capacity for enjoyment. Alienating patterns predispose you to continued alienation. For one who takes responsibility for his or her existential condition, life will be felt fully as ever-changing, echoing with loss, limited, unknowable, and chaotic. But the future is unwritten. Pain is caused by the blurring of authenticity with fabrication. We feel gravity, urge, and resolution surge through the elements, and these feelings can lead to ecstasy. Gravity, urge, and resolution appear in all stages of form, from the object we name and hold to the nameless quanta coursing through it. Consciousness seems distinct from the flesh and yet pours through it. Consciousness delights in giving meaning to the flesh as though it were its source. As consciousness evolves, meanings change or are taken away for different people at different times. Consciousness projects meaning onto things, but then, forgetting its projection, assumes those given meanings belong to those things. But the conjunction of consciousness and things invites both to feel their interdependence. These assumed meanings are another kind of ignorance. When ignorance fades, the original source of projected meaning is seen as consciousness and not the thing. A burden lifts. This becomes clear through contemplation on the difference. As veils of assumption fade, the depth of perception expands and begins to explore the unknown. And this is where he'll begin to list the eight limbs. The practices of yoga diminish alienation. I should say we begin to list the eight limbs. Me and Patanjali and all of the translators and commentators. The practices of yoga diminish alienation, allowing for the radiance of clear sight. The eight practices are relationship to other, relationship to self, poise, freedom of breath, freedom of senses, focus, contemplation, and integration. Good relationship to others requires protection, honesty, fair trade, sexual responsibility, and self-possession. 
these five means of good relationship work for everyone all the time. Good relationship to oneself requires ecology, contentment, endurance, learning, and commitment. Negative thought patterns can be altered by embodying what balances them. When thoughts of oppression in any degree are held, acted upon, delegated to another, or colluded with, whether through greed, anger, or delusion, one must realize this pattern leads to shared suffering and ignorance and work hard to reverse it. When one protects others from harm, this produces a feeling of connectedness and safety. In the aura of honesty, causes and the results make sense. When you practice fair trade, your feeling of wealth is enhanced. Sexual responsibility enables intimacy. Self-possession allows you to define yourself according to your own actions while revealing your interdependence with all things. Ecology allows you to honor your flesh and the flesh of others. Ecology enables clarity, brightness, joy, insight, sensual harmony, and inquiry. Contentment makes one at home in the world. Endurance allows the flesh and senses to be more fully enjoyed. Learning connects you with your archetypes. Commitment to relationship invites integration. Poise is steady and well-spaced. This occurs when restlessness fades and feeling is boundless. Then, even oscillations are peaceful. Breath is free when its movement is first easy and then voluntary. You can feel yourself making the breath smooth and subtle by observing the number, length, and placement of inhalations, exhalations, and pauses. Breath observance can also suspend the division between what is inside and what is outside. This feels like an unveiling of light and concentration blossoms. As as consciousness draws inward, it becomes the object of the senses. When the senses are free, they will not disturb contemplation. For those of you who are familiar with Uh, the eight limbs, you'll notice some substantial changes in uh, how I'm portraying uh, especially some of the yamas and the niyamas. I'd like to focus on one and actually call attention to my friend Jason Hirsch, who helped me with this idea um, probably like three years ago. Um, Shaucha uh, is typically translated as... um, purity, cleanliness, purification. And when taken in the context of various um, uh, uh, embodied practices of the yoga tradition, uh, such as those that evolved from Hatha Yoga Pradipika uh, and other um, following embodied yoga traditions that have purification rituals, the Shatkarmas, for example, Um, one gets the sense that the premise of cleanliness uh, is a response to a general discomfort with the body, which with the flesh. I use the word flesh actually as much as I can because body is a a very poor word in English. It 
Uh, it comes from a high German word that means uh, a tub or a vat. Uh, and, and, and what that implies for all of us is that, is that the, typically we look at this as being some kind of container. Uh, and if you just think for a moment what that, what that implies, um, it's extraordinary. Uh, there's almost like an innate homunculus theory going on in our language where we feel as though there's a little person or some essence or something uh, agent-like that is within a covering and it is directing and it's driving or something like that uh, and it wants to get the, the flesh to a place so that, so that it can fulfill its de- desires. The flesh becomes a vehicle and that is embedded in, the, in our word body. And so when, when we begin to speak of the body and the mind, not only are we uh, amplifying uh, a huge dualism, uh, but within the word body itself, we already have an implicit understanding of being within something. And being within something is not being something. Uh, so flesh is a word that I use from uh, phenomenology, uh, specifically from Maurice Merleau-Ponty, uh, who uh, uses in French la chair to describe the fact of uh, my sense and sensibility being utterly indistinguishable from the sense and sensibility of the living world around me. So I am always already, according to the notion of flesh, within a world that has given me meaning my thought that I would then put into a body to become its container is something that comes after, okay? So, um, and this is what uh, uh, the references in the second pada refer to when I speak of uh, consciousness being full of itself or consciousness uh, being deluded as to whether or not it itself came first. So, but let me go back to the ecology bit. Um, the difficulty with me going ahead and translating shaucha as purity, purification, cleanliness, uh, even hygiene, uh, extends this problem of the dirty body uh, that is enshrouding an atman or a purusha or an observatory consciousness in some sort of devolved state. And so... Uh, when, when I thought about uh, what, because we're talking about a model of health, right? Uh, a spiritual vision of health uh, is implied by shaucha, and then also uh, like a physiological keep yourself actually scrubbed and clean is implied. But both imply uh, um, a pre-existing dirtiness. Uh, and when you consider the body to be essentially fallen or essentially um, problematic, something that belongs to prakriti that you want to get away from, then you have the problem of dirt trying to clean dirt, right? It doesn't matter how much you scrub this thing. It is still, it's like prison scrubbing the prison. It's like, uh, you know, you, you have a key, you're opening yourself up, but you're still inside in a locked box. It's a very strange uh, feeling to recognize what's going on with uh, the, the accusations thrown at the body throughout the history of metaphysics. Um, 
ecology proposes something very different. Um, when I when I was talking with Jason about this, he said he said, well, you know, uh, you know, in about the 19th century. Um, a principle of communal hygiene began to be developed uh, that um, came with advances in vaccination and understandings of germ theory and so on. And uh, a biodynamic or biomedical or homeodynamic understanding of the self and other began to develop as a model of health and well-being. And uh, in Ayurveda, this is precisely what we go for as well. We don't try to cleanse the flesh and put it into a bubble of protection. Rather, what we try to do is understand where the flesh is in relationship to other flesh and how it can harmonize with its environment uh, in the most efficient way, in the most poetic way, actually. Forget efficient, the most poetic way. And um, so ecology was what, was what we, we came up with. And the, and the particular verse that I have completely screwed up here uh, is um, ecology allows you to honor your flesh and the flesh of others. This is Pada 2, verse 40. Does anybody know what, what a typical translation of that is? Shaucha, or purity, allows you to experience disgust for your own body and revulsion towards others. I kid you not. That is, I have 15 translations on my, on my shelves, and, and this verse is sitting there in the middle of the practice pada of the most popular book in modern yoga culture, and nobody is interrogating it. People say around, you know, oh, well, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's some difficulty with body stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Well, let me, let me repeat it. I'm not quoting a translation directly. I'm actually translating from my memory of the Sanskrit. Uh, purity allows you to experience your own body, your own flesh with disgust, so that you will also be revolted by others. Um, And and just to go back to what I was saying about the the notion of ethics within the ascetic tradition as being uh, separative, that the the drive is, is not to, you know... Uh, create a, uh, an ecological environment where everybody will be relatively well and we have universal health care and, you know, uh, and we have good hygiene practices at our hospitals and we know how to do home births and you know, we have good midwife support and so on. It's not about that at all. It's actually about um, distancing oneself, first of all, from the outer ring of dirtiness uh, called, called the, 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 the karma of other people. And then distancing yourself from the inner ring of dirtiness called the karma of your own body. Um, and and if, you, if, we, if we're really honest about that, then we can begin to catapult the, the tension that we feel when we come across these weird verses into something new. I mean, I had a choice. I could have just written a refutation to ascetic yoga philosophy. But, you know, like, like there's no money in that. <laughs> what, what, I, what I decided to do was to say, to say, let's look really carefully at this incredibly beautiful, incredibly potent, incredibly flawed and strange book because it is so close to our hearts. And let's see where it rubs us well, where it doesn't rub us well. Let's see what it calls us to do because... 
that's to me what doing yoga philosophy is. And it also, strangely enough, is kind of what Patanjali's project is, because it's not like, it's not like he's writing something whole cloth. Uh, there's questions as to whether he's writing anything at all. Uh, he is referred to throughout the oral tradition as a collator. That's become more and more clear as the scholarship has progressed. That, that what he in fact did was he took parcels of the ascetic wisdom of his day and he tried to um, combine it as a, as a professional grammarian into a series of mnemonic devices for easy memorization. But he's pulling from many different influences. There is a scholarly theory that says each of the four books is, is actually coming from a different school of yoga at the time. Um, uh, and, and Edwin Bryant is very clear in his commentary that uh, Patanjali is very careful to be non-denominational as he's collating all of his data together because he doesn't want to offend any of his, any of his uh, colleagues. So what we get is this wonderful, relatively non-denominational assembly that I think itself we could call somewhat of a remix. Uh, he's something of a DJ. Uh, something of, of, uh, of, of, of a combiner, a bricoleur. And this fits very well into not only uh, the history of 20th century art, but I think also into postmodern consciousness. We are pulling things together from, from fancy, from our, from our, from our skill set, from our life experience. And, and the process of collating has become its own kind of authority. Um, and so the whole paradigm of whether or not somebody, you know, has yogic truth, I think has begun to crumble. Uh, and this is, I think, as it should be, because it means that we enter into an era of, of adventurousness and of being able to collate not only the wisdom traditions of our day, but also the wisdom traditions that we don't even name as wisdom traditions yet. Literary theory, uh, neuroscience, psychoneuroimmunology, unbelievable work that people are doing uh, that I think we should be pulling into uh, our, our personal evolutionary practices. So um, I think that will give you a little bit of an idea. I think that's probably the most radical example of, of, uh, of an inversion that I've made in the text where I've taken something that is clearly insane to all of us, like, like, but I mean clearly insane and unacceptable and intolerable to the way we want to, I, I think I can be so bold as to suggest, speak, you know, to speak in the plural, the way we want to envision our bodily health and communication. Um, this is the most radical example of how I've inverted something like that. Uh, but all the way along, I have made subtle changes so that the collations of my time, of our time, can begin to enter into this stream of knowledge and at the same time keep the power of the aphorism, the power of um, uh, this, this stillness. What do you mean by personal evolutionary practices? That's my uh, way of saying spirituality. That's short form for spiritual because uh, I don't I I find spirituality as a term very problematic. Um, 
can see I have problems with a lot of things, right? Uh, but, but, uh, but evolutionary practice is generally my, my, how I'm phrasing spirituality now. So what, what do you, and what's your definition or what do you, by, of ag- agnostic? You talked about you're trying to approach things from an agnostic. Well, to, the, the, word means, the word means without knowledge. Um, so an agnostic approach to uh, an evolutionary practice would be one of an open-ended path, uh, uncertainty with regard to um, uh, final destination, uh, ideals, perhaps even who the authorities are, hopefully who the authorities are. Um, uh, it's, it's really, it's really the, the, the principle of sustained not knowing. Uh, because one of the things that I think is most oppressive about spiritual language is the presumption of knowledge. Uh, words words uh, very easily take on a theological uh, demeanor uh, and, and sound. And as they do, uh, they become, I think I began to say something like earlier, uh, they become filled with devotion yet empty of meaning and flexibility. So, so I, I am like, like a hawk on a rat uh, trying, to, uh, trying to look at each word that I use and say how much space is in there for other people's experience or interpretation, for other people's reading strategies. How much space is in this language for growth and for learning? Um, because I think, I think without that, we're not really doing philosophy and we're probably um, sort of we're probably consoling ourselves with what we think we know Um, so does that help? yeah a little bit I'd be be curious what you think about um, if you no go ahead no go ahead I'd be curious what you think about uh, the real devotional, what I what I see or perceive as the devotional yogis that are like the Krishna yeah. uh, followers. Yeah. And what um, and that. I haven't addressed bhakti yoga in this book, except that uh, in the first pada, uh, Patanjali says that you know uh, you know one of the pathways to integration is Ishvara Pranidhana or uh, devotion, surrender to God. Um, and uh, I've translated that as um, uh, a devotion, a devotional attitude. Let me see where it is. Uh, yeah. So the intensity of practice reveals yoga's nearness. Intensity has many different facets, including the focus of devotion. Devotion can feel timeless and resolved. My attitude towards towards devotional yoga in general is that. Um, there's a there's a there's a there's a psychological gesture towards the the intersubjective that it holds, uh, but but I think that um, uh, the, the, for me personally, metaphysical beliefs actually interrupt or they disturb the the power of that outreach of that of that of that yearning. So um, you know. With, with my clients um, who, who are getting a lot from 
uh, devotional practices, what I find is that the object of devotion for them is flexible, uh, but the feeling that's generated in the act of devotion is what is of most importance to them. The ones who I find in, in my consultation practice who, are really, who really suffer in devotional practice um, are those who you know, wonder why God isn't speaking back or wonder you know, when their prayers will be answered or wonder you know, why things aren't improving because they have obviously petitioned and, you know, and placated and so on. So that's what I've seen so far. Yeah. yeah, I'd be interested in, in um, how you're using and defining consciousness yeah. and awareness yeah. throughout the text. Yeah, um, awareness I describe, uh, there's a whole chapter on it actually, um, because these are muddy terms, perception, consciousness, and awareness. Perception I relate to uh, autonomic, pre, pre-linguistic uh, presence. Uh, consciousness involves cognition, and awareness roughly involves metacognition or the awareness of consciousness. Um, and you know, these have like an evolutionary hierarchy. The, 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 the difficulty with consciousness uh, I propose in the book through a review of what Patanjali has done is that uh, consciousness forgets that it's riding on something. Uh, the, the, the cognitive brain forgets continually that it is being supported by, by what is present, by what is always already here. Like, so I'll, I'll say with my students, um, you know, what was the first thought that you had this morning upon rising? Uh, and people will say, um, you know, I, I think I'm late for work. And I'll say, before that, um, oh, I wonder what time it is. I say, before that. Because you'll get to a point in that, uh, in that emerging from Thomas state where uh, there is no cognitive function and yet there's perception. There's no sense of I. In fact, your, your sense of individuality is crystallizing. It's chunking together. It's, it's kind of dribbling into position and then forming a coherent self. That's happening every single morning. That means you have access to the construction of identity every single morning. Uh, it's wonderful. It's amazing. I, I always think if, if, if I can extend that out for you know, even 30 seconds or a minute, I can see how I began to make myself out of some you know, f- either fear or anxiousness or, 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 or just contraction or need to do something. Uh, but prior to that, I was just a breathing you know, flesh, uh, and, and there was no eye sense. So that's a, a brief uh, overlay of, of perception, consciousness, awareness. It's, it's a hard, that's a hard question. I think... Is there any, was there gender neutrality in the sutras when they were first written? There, there, is, there is nothing, um, there's almost nothing gendered per se in... The Sanskrit, the, the Sanskrit is very, very sparse. Um, uh, and, 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 and syntactically almost impossible to decipher, which is why there are so many different cons- sentence constructions when 
people when people translate. But there is no there is no second person address. There is no the yogi. Uh, there is no reference to there is no reference to to person uh, actually uh, throughout throughout the bias of the text. Is that Yeah, if if there was a gender implication there, absolutely. Well, uh, maybe I'll finish with 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 one of the sparks for this. Um, I was sitting at uh, I was sitting at, at dinner with Diana Allstad about four years ago, uh, who with Joel Kramer uh, wrote the Guru Papers and the Passionate Mind. Um, so these are heroes of mine, and you know, somewhere after the second beer, she leans over and she says, "Tell me, why should I be interested in what Patanjali has to say?" Isn't he writing before feminism? And it stopped me dead because, because I realized that, that um, in, my, in my nostalgia for, for an archaic age, um, I was often willing to give up or to set aside or to empty myself of all kinds of... of of my of my dearest considerations, my dearest my my dearest sources of learning uh, in in contemporary culture, in order to just in order to to um, almost worship at the altar of the past, and uh, she really she really called me up short. Um, the book closes with, "Every book must end." For me, the ending of a book is an invitation to lay all books down for a while and live beneath and beyond the cascade of words. The cortical symphony can resolve to the gentle hum of a soothed amygdala. Explicit memory can sink into implicit memory and bring present peace to past chaos. The conscious can become porous to the perceptual, inviting the living world to flood the tiny room of the eye. Patanjali and the other grammarians of his time were obsessed with economy in writing. One of them said that if the writer of a sutra could eliminate a single syllable from his text, this was equal to gaining a child. For them, it meant striving for perfection in philosophical precision. For me, and I imagine most of us today, it means willingly, willfully becoming silent in the knowledge that the work of thought and empathy will never be finished, and letting this silence somehow make room for all that is about to be born within us and around us. My last syllable now comes here. Jacob is crying. Jacob needs these hands, this voice. So thank you for your attention. And so we'll stand up to finish.